Brethren, I invite you to turn in your copies of the Scripture to 2 Samuel 11, which will be our primary text. And you may also want to put a finger in James chapter 1, as I'll be reading uh, a few verses from there as well. 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is the uh, account of David's sin with Bathsheba. Here once again, the very Word of God. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Reba. But David remained in Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will, do, will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah, Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him, drink, uh, made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him, that he may be struck down and die. So it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell And Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab went and told David all the things concerning the war and charged the messenger saying, When you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, Why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech the son of Jerubasheth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of a millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? 
then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And now from James chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we've read two passages from your word that are very sobering. They speak of grievous sin that displeases you actions of men that have resulted in death. And Father, these are things that are not so far from us. We are sinners in desperate need of cleansing. We are sinners who need help to deal with temptation. And we are given all too often to our sins and our fleshly desires. Father, we pray that You would cleanse us that the fruits of the Spirit would take root in our lives and grow and be nourished, and that they would displace the fruits of fleshly passion. Father, we thank You that You have recorded for us examples of men, mighty men, who are weak when it comes to temptation. To remind us that we too, even in our best day, need to be humble when it comes to fighting against temptation, calling out for your help, seizing upon the Word of God to strengthen us, trusting in the Spirit to guide and direct us. Father, in all this, we do ask for your help. We ask that you would make us strong for the work of the kingdom, that we would not be given to our passions, but rather be passionate about the work of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and his kingdom. And we ask this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Well, brethren, our passage today is a most sobering and very instructive passage that speaks profoundly about man's greatest weakness and its costly consequences. I'm not talking about sin as much as I am talking about temptation. Sin is the outworking of man's yielding to temptation. Thus, it is with temptation that we must begin to understand how we are to stand strong in the faith 
that our Lord has graciously bestowed on us when sin is so near. To be sure, sin is insidious, and it surely leads to death, as our passage teaches us. Yet, sin begins with the seed of temptation that must first sprout and take root before the mature fruit of sin is born. So it is with temptation that I want us to focus our attention today. Once we have considered David's temptation, then next week we shall consider his sin and its consequences. And then lastly, we shall consider God's remedy for those who yield to temptation resulting in sin. So let us begin with David sending all Israel to war while he stays home in the luxury of his palace in verse 1. It is there we read, It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to, to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Reba. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now you may recall from last week, that the armies of Israel had fought with the Ammonites uh, several times, as well as the Syrians. Initially, David had sent Joab out with the armies, and he remained in Jerusalem. And it wasn't until later in the chapter that David went out to lead his armies when the armies of the enemy were reconstituted. David did gain the victory, but he had done so uh, after doing something he had never done, and that was send his armies out without him in the lead. He sent his armies out to do the work he, was, he had always done before. He had shed the mantle of God's champion in the face of the enemy. He was God's champion. Remember, he fought Goliath when still a young man. He fought the giant and destroyed the giant. And yet, Last week, we saw that he had yielded that responsibility to another, to his general, Joab. The ever-vigilant, self-controlled champion of God, David, who from the plains of Elah had slain Goliath and then led the armies of Israel from victory to victory, was now leading from behind, to borrow a modern phrase. It was from his leisure that David was sending out his armies while he enjoyed the comforts of God's manifold blessings. And our passage today begins with David doing again what he had done in the previous chapter. Instead of leading all Israel against the enemies of God, David is idle in his palace. It is there that temptation comes to visit. My grandmother used to tell me that idleness was the devil's workshop. Now, some of you may have heard that phrase from your elders. But the more accurate truth is that temptation can come at any time. It is true, however, that temptation comes very often at times of idleness. Such was the case with David in our passage today. Had David been about the work he was given to do, champion the cause of God in the face of the enemy, his eyes would never have glanced over the wall to see Uriah's wife Bathsheba on the neighboring housetop. Now we must be careful not to transfer blame only to David's idleness. I do believe it was a contributing factor, 
But David could have been just as easily enticed to sin with an Amorite or Syrian woman had he been about the work of being God's champion, taking them as slaves. The point is that David had lowered his guard of self-control at the time when it should have been raised. And we must understand the nature of temptation and when it afflicts us. And this is the reason for the passage from James chapter 1. James gives us instruction. Listen carefully to what he says, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 1. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives forth death. Brethren, temptation must be endured, James writes. It cannot always be avoided. Yes, we can avoid it sometimes and get victory over it, but it must be endured, according to James. James tells us that temptation is rooted in the enticement of our own desires. And it's not always external. In fact, I would say that temptation is primarily rooted in one's own desires. Temptation can be aroused from external stimuli, but the burden of temptation resides within us. It begins with our own desires. God did not entice Adam and Eve to sin. Eve was deceived by the serpent. But Adam desired what he knew was forbidden to him, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam wanted what God had reserved for himself. Adam wanted to be like God. He was enticed by his own desires to grab what was not his to possess. And brethren, this is a mature Christian understands this. The temptation starts within me. It may be aroused from external stimuli, but it begins in one's own heart. Now, knowing that temptation begins with our own desires helps us to understand how we are to fight against it. We can be tempted to do any and all of the sins God identifies in the Scriptures. We're not exempt from any of them. Yet it has been my observation in my own life and the lives of others that each of us tends to struggle with certain sins, whether it is the lust of the flesh, the violation of the commandment not to commit adultery, the lust of the eye, which is a violation of, the, of uh, coveting as well as stealing, or the pride of life, the violations of the remaining seven commandments. Each of us has desires that can take root and bear the bitter fruit of sin in any one of these sins. But it is my observation that most of us are tempted by certain sins more than others. Now, by way of contrast, consider Paul's teaching in Galatians 5 regarding the fruits of the Spirit. If temptation bears fruit, the fruit of sin and death, what about the spiritual man's changed heart 
Galatians 5, verses 22 through 24, reads this, like this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and primarily for our text today, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have been crucified, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Let me read that again. Verse 24, Galatians 5. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Crucifixion in the Scriptures is a radical form of capital punishment. Paul says that those who are Christ's have radically crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. But you may say, I still struggle with my sins. How is it that my passions and desires have been crucified and yet I still have these struggles? Well, Brethren, just as sin is the fruit of temptation that has taken root in a man's life, so the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, they are the fruits of a person whose passions and fleshly desires have been mortified. But just like any fruit, it takes time to grow. The person who humbly seeks the forgiveness of God for his own sin begins the journey of mortifying his own ungodly passions and fleshly desires. They are being put to death while the fruits of the Spirit, the Spirit of God, begin to grow and flourish, supplanting the, flu- the, the passions of the flesh. With this in mind, self-control is of necessity. Of necessity. Brethren, self-control... Excuse me. Yes, self-control is mentioned eight times in the Bible and all eight times are found in the New Testament. (laughs) The spiritual man must recognize that without the Spirit guiding him in self-control, he cannot overcome his own fleshly desires. The spiritual man must be an active participant in mortifying his own fleshly desires. And this brings us back to David's remaining behind in Jerusalem when he should have been leading his armies. Brethren, we must structure our lives in such a way as to mortify the flesh and to promote the growth of the fruits of the Spirit. How is this accomplished? Well, at least two activities come to my mind. Many more could be added to this number. But two that I want to emphasize that aid in this pursuit. Nourishing the growth of the fruits of the Spirit and mortifying the fleshly passions. Gentlemen and ladies as well, but mostly gentlemen, visual technology is all around us. And just as virtually everything in life can be used for good and evil, visual technology can and does aid in the arousal of sexual desires and passions. The sidelong glance of David at Bathsheba over the wall aroused his fleshly passions. We don't even have to look out a window. We merely have to look at our computers or our televisions and have those same fleshly passions aroused. 
Next week, we're going to see if we don't exercise self-control in these circumstances in curbing idleness and placing hedges around our passions and those things that arouse them, our destruction and the destructions of those around us is assured. But this is where self-control must be exercised. If you're going to be tempted, and it doesn't have to be just with the, the lust of the eye, it could be the pride of life. Or the, excuse me, the lust of the flesh. It could be the lust of the eye and the pride of life. All three of those things encompass all the sins that we commit. If we don't exercise self-control by being deliberate of, about guarding what we see and what we hear and what we say, these things will overtake us to the point of sin and death. Fleshly passions lead to sin. They lead to destruction and eternal damnation. David's unchecked fleshly passions directly caused the death of a faithful servant and friend and wreaked havoc on his family for generations. And we're going to see that in weeks to come. Our brethren, it starts with temptation and then it goes to sin, but if we let those things grow... The destruction is plethora. It's almost unimaginable. And we seen we saw last year when we when we went through First Samuel, uh, the destruction that it brought upon Saul, his sins, where he spiraled down into into death itself. And we have got to to guard ourselves against those things. Though God was ultimately merciful to David and his household, many suffered because of his sin. And this brings us to our application today. Let me remind us of what I've already mentioned. One, we have to guard against idleness. We, we, we as a culture are addicted to leisure. We have an addiction to that. And I'm not saying all leisure is wrong. In fact, I'm, I would argue that it, it has a purpose and a place and should be used for the glory of God. But when it overtakes mountains of time in our lives, we are giving ourselves over to our own passions. We are, it's controlling us. We're not controlling it in our lives. And God calls us to self-control. Self-government. Not only that, we have to be deliberate, forthright, thinking ahead. I've, I've encouraged... I'll just give you this example. I think I gave it to you once before. Charles Reynolds, when he was here, uh, he struggled with temptations uh, on the computer. And I said to him, I said, Charles, if you can't control it, if you don't have the self-control to control it, get rid of the computer. It's not worth having. He took that computer and threw it in the Ohio River. Now, I'm not saying everybody has to do that, but I am saying you need to be self-aware. If something's controlling you that displeases God, you've got to get rid of it. You have to take the initiative. You have to be responsible. That's what the Scriptures call us to. So the spiritual man understands his profound inability to control his passions. And he seeks the help of the one who can change his passions to, decide, to desire the things of God. 
And who is that person? None other than Christ. When we, when we empty ourselves into Christ, He fills us up with desires that are pleasing to God. We have to humble ourselves and empty ourselves that we might be lifted up with His passions. Passions for righteousness and kingdom building. The spiritual man understands that temptation is something that must be endured if it is to be overcome. Don't think that there's a, a time in your life when temptation won't come. If you think that way, you're fools to think that way. Anyone who thinks that way is foolish. We must understand that temptation will come. But we must understand how we act when it does come. We have to be the ones who overcome by and through the strength of Christ. The spiritual man understands that temptation is something that must be endured if it is to be overcome. And the spiritual man also knows that God does not permit our passions to be aroused and temptation to occur without there being a way of escape. For God has written, 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Notice that it's common to men to be tempted. That's what Paul writes. So we must be mature about this. Say to yourself, I will be tempted. But cling to the Scriptures and to the help of the Spirit to overcome that temptation, knowing that God will always provide for you a way of escape. So the spiritual man must become something he is not. He must become a faithful child of God. He must be born again. The spiritual man cannot become spiritual until he dies to self that he might be made to live in the newness of Jesus Christ. Now, I look across this room, I know most everyone here well. I trust that all of you have been born again. But absent that new birth, there is no way you can overcome your fleshly passions. You have to be given a new nature. And that happens when you yield to Christ and trust in Him for your salvation. Again, the spiritual man cannot become spiritual until he dies to self, that he might be made to live in the newness of Jesus Christ. Brethren, the spiritual man realizes that dying to self is not just a once activity, but rather a daily activity. Why? Because temptation is a daily occurrence. The mature Christian realizes that he has to come to grips with dealing with this on a regular basis. And sometimes the temptations win. But in the sanctified promises of God, over time, they become less and less the winners as we embrace the fruits of the Spirit. Each day is a new day to live for God. Each day is an opportunity to die to self and to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Trusting God to provide all that we need, including the mortification of our fleshly desires. And lastly, the spiritual man never forgets the words Paul wrote to the Philippians when battling temptation. 
I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Temptation does not have to overtake us. That's when we yield to God and cry out for His help and ask for the Holy Spirit to strengthen us through that. Don't give yourself over to idleness. Don't allow your eyes to cast a gaze over the rooftop. Guard yourself with self-control. Seek the face of the Lord and His Word that you might be cleansed so that your fleshly passions can be mortified and the fruits of the Spirit grow. Let us pray together.